Speaks Radio. I'm your host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, Lori LeBay. And today we are thrilled to have our guest with us, who is Jackie Garrett. And um, she is going to be talking about some really interesting things. And I'm not going to drop the, the egg on that one quite yet. I'm going to go through our kind of normal introduction and uh, because we're always getting new listeners. And so for those of you that are new to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, basically this was created due to my mom's journey with dementia um, for 30 years. And uh, her journey was life-changing for me. And uh, now we have Alzheimer's Speaks on many different platforms, from the blog to the resource directory to YouTube um, to doing dementia chats where I interview people with dementia, um, as well as um, hosting the radio show. And here we interview people um, at all different levels. So we have professionals. Um, our last show, we just interviewed uh, Dr. Elliot Goldstein with uh, Promise Neurosciences, and um, he's a researcher. Uh, we have had authors on. We have had movie directors, singer-songwriters, um, different types of businesses providing services, products, and tools to help those dealing with dementia um, be able to live a little better life. Um, through having conversations. We've had family members and, again, the true experts, those that are diagnosed. Um, our company is, is what I consider an advocacy-based company, and uh, you know, our goal is to continue to provide multiple types of platforms for people to engage and share the knowledge that they have so that they can help the next guy um, deal, deal on their path just a, a little bit easier. So it's all about shifting our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. And it's fun using social media on this platform because we truly can make a difference globally um, by, by just having simple everyday conversations. So I thank you for par participating in that. Um, we also help companies um, expand kind of their brand uh, footprint by leveraging our content too. So if you are a business who um, is in this arena and is looking to um, expand your audience, please reach out to me because we have lots of different ways that we can assist you with that. You see, it's all your likes, your clicks, your shares that have really expanded our base. I've just been overwhelmed with the response of, you know, our various content. Um, because of you, we were recognized by Oprah as a health hero for 2018 in um, 20, I think it was 2017 uh, by Maria Shriver as an architect of change. And then in, I think it was 2012, Dr. Oz and ShareCare recognized us as the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's. And we did not do that ourselves um, by any stretch. That really was a collaborative effort of sharing knowledge um, because we haven't bought any likes, any clicks, any shares. We just don't have it in the budget. 
um, Alzheimer's Speaks is pretty much this girl, <laughs> you know, on a mission um, to talk with others. And so again, really appreciate you in sharing our content because that that was the goal, you know, when we started the company was to get people engaged and to raise everyone's voice. So thank you for joining our mission and, you know, any accolades that we get, we share them with you because we truly do believe we are a team. I also need to give a shout out just to Health First. I was down in Melbourne, Florida last month and they just had a great uh, family caregiver conference that I was part of and I was just really um, impressed with their company. I also just came back from Northwest um, Rural Health Conference in Washington and that was really exciting to see what rural communities are doing to become more dementia friendly. I did a whole day intensive with that and it was really fun to see what they were what they were coming up with. In April on the 10th, actually, I'm going to be in Iowa for the Alzheimer's Association's Brain Work Conference. And I'm really excited to go there. Um, one, just to meet everybody. Uh, that's always fun. So if you're in that area, please, uh, please come and, and um, say hi to me. I'd love to talk with you and, and learn more about your journey. But I'm going to get to meet um, former governor of Wisconsin, um, Martin Schreiber, which is um, exciting because I had him actually on the radio show. His wife was diagnosed with dementia. He wrote a book called My Two Elaines. And he'll be talking about what he learned in terms of coping through that process. And so that that will be fun um, in and of itself. And it sounds like Jackie's got some guests in the house there. <laughs> so what are, what are the dog's names, Jackie? That would um, not go off while we were. <laughs> well, some days we just don't have control over those things. And what I love about my audience dealing with dementia, they really know that that is a very minute little thing. It doesn't really matter, um, and they tell me that all the time. Uh, you know, if if we have a computer glitch or you know a call gets dropped, they're like, "That's nothing compared to the world they're living in." And so they are very forgiving and accepting, um, and just continue on with a smile on their face. So. Um, don't let that stress you out because it's not going to stress us out. Jackie, for those of you that, that don't know her, is a former Army social worker. And she's also worked in the, the VA, uh, the Congress, and the Pentagon. And she specializes in military-related um, disability benefits and PTSD, which we're hearing more and more about all the time, suicide prevention, and now... You have started a whistleblower company for peer support called Whistleblowers of America. And then you also do um, consulting through uh, FAR Group um, Consulting. And so I'm really excited to have you with us today. I, I was able to hear her speak um, for one of the NFL Super Bowl events. And I just, I thought, I, I have to have her on the show. She's just got such a wide range of, of knowledge and um, speaks on topics that, you know, sometimes are kind of uncomfortable for us to hear and to have, but they are essential for us to talk about. And, you know, that's one of the things that we do here is, is try to ease that distress in 
conversations that are so relevant. So thank you for joining us today, Jack. Prior to starting today, we were kind of joking that her dogs couldn't be outside because of the rain. And I'm in Minnesota and we're getting, you know, here it is April and we're getting six inches of snow and they're going to close the schools early this afternoon. So with that, you know, I never know what my internet connection is going to be like, but we had our fingers crossed, and I'm sure it'll all be just fine. <laughs> um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is if you can explain to our audience what the connection between the biological brain function and mental health is. There are some interesting theories in terms of looking at the cortisol levels that um, get produced and the hormones that we have that are involved in our fight flight system. Especially when we start talking about um, trauma and traumatic stress and the amount of endorphins and dopamine and cortisol and all of the chemicals that affect the brain, how does that change the brain and change the actual con construct of the brain over time? And there is definitely more of a body of research that indicates that our brains change based on that exposure to stress and that those toxic environments have long-lasting impacts as well. Which makes a lot of sense. And I think, um, but I also think it's one of those areas that's ignored. You know, we try to pretend like we're dealing with it and we're not, we're not fully viewing ourselves in the mirror in terms of how are we truly reacting to it and and what is it doing to not only our our mind but our body as a whole and it's a it's a dangerous thing to ignore um that that stress so i think and you made reference in your introduction to the brain forum that we just had in minnesota in relation to the super bowl and Prior to the, the actual game, Lee Steinberg hosts a huge party, and part of that is he invites people to come to this brain forum. And we were able to discuss the fact that um, military service and sports have, uh, in this case, on women. And one of the things, and Gus Farratt, who was a football player, as many of you may or may not know, but Gus Perot made a really good observation in talking about when we go to the doctor, we get our blood tested, we get our urine tested, we have we get a screening, which is pretty much from the neck down, not the neck up. And we don't get, and there aren't that many for actually screening our brain health. And that's an important piece because we we miss so much of, of the actual brain functioning as well as the emotional functioning when you know our primary care doctors don't assess our cognitive abilities and where we're at emotionally. Very true and I'm, I'm just going to give a, a plug for Gus because he he is working with a company that has an app called the Roberto app which measure, measures brain function through video engagement and it's really, it's fun, it's easy, um, it's not very expensive, but it gives you a great baseline if you just want to track yourself. Um, yeah, that panel was very informative. And um, I think we're very interested in some of these tools and looking at how the active duty military and veterans, um, wounded warriors, disabled vets, how they could benefit from having some of these technologies 
that monitor brain functioning and help inform um, treatment, compliance with treatment, and um, self-monitoring so that you can feel more resilient, more able um, to function and do things on your own, as opposed to having to solely rely just on your caregiver to remember when to take your meds or to um, be able to monitor your your performance in terms of like for the wounded warriors who are competing and they're trying to keep track of their biological physiological reactions their speed their time so and to be at appointments and to be on time for races so all these things that excuse me with scheduling are important tools as well that um, facilitate this, uh, this brain health. Exactly. It is, it's something we all need to, to be much more conscious of at all ages. Cause you know, with dementia, it's not, uh, it's not an old person's disease. Kids are now getting diagnosed with this, the concussions and, um, the traumatic brain injuries that are happening from car accidents, from, from, um, you know, supporting our country, you know, in the military. I mean, there's just, there's so many avenues. We really, all have to get better educated. Um, us as civilians, as those in the military, and you know our our medical professionals too need a lot more training out there in terms of what to look for and what resources for for people too. To make a distinction between the cognitive and the brain functioning and some of the psychiatric um, mental health conditions as well, because those things happen sometimes on a similar trajectory, but also on a separate trajectory. And we have to be able to understand the difference between a traumatic brain injury, TBI or CTE, for the, that's been more common among the football players. What are the differences between a blast and a concussion from, um, from a roadside bomb as opposed to the constant um, having your head hit during a football game? as well as then the emotional consequences um, if you've been exposed to combat or other types of trauma, like a a sexual assault. Um, In in the world I'm working with now, it's retaliation, hostile work environments. Um, Those are traumatic experiences that when repeatedly there's this exposure to the trauma or there's um, memories of death, destruction, you're having um, nightmares, you're hypervigilant. Those things are on the psychiatric side. And we need to be able to treat those symptoms. But if we're not looking at the comorbid conditions when a TBI and PTSD happen together, and you're you're treating the, the PTSD with cognitive behavioral therapy, it's a cognitive-based approach. If you're working with somebody who might not be able to engage in that cognitive reprocessing, well, then the, the therapy might not work. And what I've seen for generations um, with Vietnam veterans is that they were labeled um, treatment failures or non-compliant. And so instead of looking at the treatment, maybe not for the veteran, we've looked at the veteran as not being right for the treatment. And I think we have seen in this, in this OIF, um, Iraqi freedom, um, Afghanistan, in this current generation, we're learning a lot about brain injury that I don't think we looked at 
in the Vietnam era or even before that, um, Korea, World War II. <clears throat> we didn't quite understand the brain injury in the same way. So now we have this aging Vietnam veteran population who has had PTSD for decades. And we've not looked at the types of treatment we've offered. And the, and the VA offers um, as evidence-based primarily two types of treatment, both cognitively-based treatments, when in fact they might be having to deal with a population that they've never really diagnosed and properly assessed for their brain injuries. And I think that's been a big missing piece for this generation because now we also see a high rate of suicide among um, or an older population in general. And I think we've misdiagnosed some of their head injury or the, that complication maybe from a head injury earlier in life that's now affecting um, their mood, whether they're depressed, anxious. And we do see in a Vietnam population or other other that veteran population with world who near the end of their lives decompensated uh, quicker and faster than maybe their lives because the, um, the ability to control the traumatic stress reaction. You have a veteran who has now early onset of dementia and previously they never had PTSD symptoms, you might see a triggering because their ability to control some of their beliefs, some of those memories had are now surface. It's a re-traumatization fired. They've lost their job. They've lost their identity. Well, that is really interesting. And like you said, something that hasn't really been talked about widely in terms of what is going on and so many people are affected, you know, by the, the wars that we've, we've been in and, um, you know, the service that is held. And, you know, that's a whole nother level of insight um, for people to be able to, to understand. I remember um, <clears throat> in this, you know, my mom didn't serve, but in her dementia, and I'll, I'll never forget this moment, we were cleaning out her closet in the nursing home, and she, and I was just going to organize it. I wasn't really get, getting rid of anything. I was just going to straighten it up so it'd be a little easier for her, and she just got hysterical. She was sobbing, and she was just terrified, and I'm like, Mom, I'm just, I'm organizing. I'm not going to throw anything out. Don't worry. You know, you still have all your faves and stuff. And and then come to realize that the TV was on and we were bombing Iraq. And in her mind, that was happening right out the door. It, it wasn't overseas. It wasn't on TV. It was right there. And that was just such a huge revelation to me in terms of a trigger point. And I can't even imagine if let's say she had dementia and she did serve what that would have triggered in her. You know, my mom wasn't in the service, never was in the service. And it just triggered such, it was terrifying, just terrifying. But as soon as I turned that TV off, she reacclimated, you know? Um, and, but again, those are things that we don't really think about and they're critical in terms of the person's peace of peace of mind and feeling of safety. And um, of course, we've got to be much more conscious with that. Have you seen more progression in terms of, of um, 
doctors or therapies in terms of their approach? The way they're able to treat um, veterans is very much based on what's evidence-based or what there is of as having worked and less ability to embrace some of the more ancillary types of services and support. Although I have to say over the last few years, I think there's been more of that and adding in some of the other types of therapies like being able to add in music therapy with the population. Because sometimes I've seen this with art therapy where somebody who might not be able to put into words what their trauma is. It's really healing. So I, we've done, um, like with Wounded Warriors, they've made masks. I've seen um, collages where you can cut out pictures from magazines and create your own narrative. And you don't have to be a great artist. Mm-hmm. We've seen with some of the adaptive sports how that really has helped younger Wounded Warriors with rebuilding their sense of self, of confidence, of their self-actualization skills, and being part of a team. I am a real believer that peers and peer support, something they can connect with who understands their experience, mitigate a, a like you were talking about, um, a negative reaction. To have that capability is, is really powerful. And I think those are the kinds of tools that outside of, and by all means, I'm a fan of cognitive behavior therapy. I don't want to give the wrong impression. But by all means, those ancillary approaches, I think, are very helpful and useful in building a person's everyday life capabilities, not just their therapeutic ones. Yeah. One of the, the things, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's called Dementia Mentors. And it's a it's a group of individuals that um, let's say um, let's say you would get diagnosed with a form of dementia, you could contact them and they will hook you up with a mentor, someone who is diagnosed, who's heard those words, who's seen their family and friends' reactions, who's who's lived it, and um, people just say over and over what a lifesaver that is, you know, because it's. It's real life. It's common sense connection. And sometimes I think, I think sometimes we can forget how important both of those things are. Everything can't have stats behind it unless it's tried first, you know, and, and it's just that that social connection, I think, is just so powerful for people not to feel alone and not to feel isolated. And you know, they do it, most of them do it through a, a Zoom platform like this. So they're doing a video conferencing um, maybe once or a couple times a week, some maybe only once a month, depending on what the needs are, you know, of the individuals. But, but, but getting them reconnected and kind of restabilized where everything is safe. And they just have these earnest conversations that we don't always have every day you know we still have a lot of filters and we cover up and and they just let it all out and say it's okay we're also dealing maybe with a a more recent life diagnosis but you're also dealing with the the ghosts of the past and Mm -hmm. you're trying to still continue to process um traumatic events that although may have happened 20 years ago, 40 years ago, those are still very powerful memories that are embedded in 
your ability to respond to current life events. So trauma survivors have a very hypervigilant um, approach to social situations. They're always on guard. They're always waiting for you know, what could happen. They don't like to have their back to the door. That those issues don't go away. One diagnosis doesn't override or replace another one. Yeah. You have to be able to integrate um, the tra trauma care, PTSD trauma type care into a, um, a more current especially if, you know, as we're talking about elderly and as people age and the diseases related to aging, how do some of those things from the military war-related experiences, other types of traumas, how do they continue to play out in current everyday life? And, and how do you talk about those things who, especially with um, Agent Orange-related diseases, are also going to have an impact as they age? They're still not 100% all of the effects that have had on the body and how the brain is impacted by some of those things are important for, I think you asked earlier about like what a medical provider need to know. I think being able to do that military history, knowing about where somebody served, knowing what their exposures were, knowing what their combat experiences were, knowing if they've ever been in PTSD treatment, if they've ever been suicidal, medication, they could have long-lasting effects as well. The veteran has been through combat or other military-related trauma. Yeah, I had a, a friend who wrote a book about her dad, who um, had post-traumatic stress, um, wanted to apply for help, but back then they were really discouraged against getting it. And yeah, it was a it's a it's a really interesting book and the family dynamics and the alcoholism that then came to be the addiction in because he was trying to deal with it himself and how that affected the family. And it was just a, an amazing story, the research that she did on this. And I, it makes me think of, you know, there's a lot of um, memory units that will have um, displays, you know, of different things for service, but people also have to, have to understand the flip side, just like with music. Music can do great things, but it can also, it, it can trigger you know, fond memories and happiness and joy, but it can also trigger great sadness and grief and different things. And memorabilia regarding, you know, service can do the same thing too. And I don't, I have to honestly say, I have not really heard any prime discussions regarding kind of that give and take, you know, of, of that effect. And I think it's really important. And I love your idea about um, diving deeper into that experience, and um, you know, we're—I think everybody in in the, the dementia arena, you know, most people understand it's important to get that history. But I think sometimes we're too superficial with it. Oh, you know, they were a vet. Well, you need to know more than just they were a vet. And you gave yeah. some great examples of, you know, conversations that could be had that, you know, for a lot of reasons were probably too uncomfortable for many people to even discuss. Think of our Vietnam vets and how they were treated when they came home that still just 
breaks my heart. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot that needs to be discussed. Some of these are taboo subjects. They are difficult to talk about. Trauma is definitely difficult to talk about. But one of the things really helpful in healing is how we manage the narrative. Mm -hmm. Ownership of your own narrative while you still can, I think is particularly important. And so one of the things I really like are, um, I'll call them legacy projects, mm -hmm. where families can get together and help really rebuild the, the narrative. Um, the Library of Congress does a really interesting veterans history project. The Women in Military Service Memorial has a women in military um, opportunity to share your narrative. There are, so there are these opportunities out there where you can actually have these guided conversations about military experience. But I think in all in all, families can really pull together their own, whether it's like a scrapbook or a, a memory box where you can collect and identify things that were important, you know, put, put together a uniform, put together a album of photographs, um, all of that paperwork, which is important on many levels because you might need them for benefits, mm -hmm. things like that with the Departments of Veterans Affairs and Defense, sometimes your state benefits. I mean, there's, so there's a whole lot of other reasons for keeping the paperwork and organizing the paperwork that comes from the military. But being able to have that family narrative, um, knowing the difference between the branches of the service and, you know, like, for example, with the Army, what's the difference between an artillery unit, an infantry unit, um, being a medic versus being a corpsman from the Navy, um, being aboard a ship, as opposed to being a Marine with, you know, that boots on the ground, grunt experience. For families to know that narrative is, is, is an important part of the family history and being able to build that together to have parents and children and grandchildren and aunts, uncles and cousins work on this family military narrative, I think is a, is a great way of preserving the family legacy, but also having all of the records and the documentation together that you might need in the event of needing to get um, VA care benefits, burial benefits, whether somebody's entitled to a flag, is entitled to, and how to properly honor um, a military veteran when they have passed. One thing I have to, I, and I've said this before on a couple other shows, but every time I, I get the opportunity, I say it. My dad served in the Army when we went to bury him, talked at the funeral, and, and they said, well, you know, we'll give you a flag. And I'm like, well, there's three of us. We, we, we need three flags, you know, and he's like, well, I can, I can only give you one, but you can buy two more. And so we bought two, two more so that each of us could have that piece of my dad so that we didn't, because uh, that was really going to be a tug of war amongst us. But that was just such an important symbol to us. And so I always um, share that with other families. You know, you don't have to struggle with that. You can go and purchase more so that you have that symbolic piece, you know, for each of you. And, and for us as, as um, siblings, that was just such a gift for each of us to have. You know, it was just such an honor to be able to, 
to have that. The only mistake that was made was at the funeral, they put out all three flags. And, and, then, and then their friend said, well, did he serve in more than one, you know, one capacity? Was he in more than one war? What was the, what was the deal? And then we, you know, we got a good laugh out of it and said, no, no, he was just, just didn't, you know, serve the one time and stuff, but then explained what we were doing. And then people really liked that idea as family. And so I always try to talk about that anytime that I can. Sort of creating traditions, mm-hmm. especially as we move into more of a conversation about grief and loss. As, and trauma for the, you know, for the veterans themselves is how do you create that sense of um, commemoration mm-hmm. important to the veteran. Um, you know, for I'm in the Washington, D.C. area, so people like to come here and visit the Vietnam Veteran Memorial, the World War II Memorial, the Korean War Memorial. I mean, that's all right here and very accessible. Every state has some, um, some type of a memorial now for veterans going to visit that memorial or is bringing something into the house like a folded flag or displaying medals, those all become ways of honoring and recognizing service. And one of the things they do now with this younger generation is they, they celebrate their alive day. So if they were wounded in combat or had some injury and, and, and they have come past that, they call that day their alive day. So they have their birthday, but they celebrate the day they were born. But then they have this alive day that's very much about a renewal and a recommitment to life and, and recognizing that there was a really bad day in my life mm-hmm. and I had to come this far in my recovery. And, and recovering from some of these very painful wounds, um, and we've talked a little bit about the traumatic brain injury, but we've we have generations now of veterans who have survived amputations, um, multiple body system injuries. So maybe you can't see all the scars, but there are a lot of scars there. And how do you talk about the scars, the emotional ones, as well as the physical ones with your family? How do you explain the scars to your children, to your grandchildren who want to understand, you know, why is mom or dad or pop pop? Why are they different or why do they look different? Or, you know, if I'm there, am I going to get that scar? Is that Mm going to happen to me? Children don't understand those kinds of things. Talking about it so that it can become sort of a source of pride for families because they need to understand what has happened to know how to, especially children, to know how to integrate it into their own narrative about who they are in the world as well. Very true. One of the questions I wanted to, to ask you was, you know, as as people age, do you feel like there's more of a risk for suicide than there used to be? You suicide kind of along uh, what I call an inverted bell curve. So you see a very high rate at the younger ages. And then sort of as you get towards your middle ages, it goes down. And I think as people are, you know, they're busy with life. They've kind of adjusted to who they are. But then it starts to go back up as people age, as they pass their 60s, 70s, even into their 80s, we see an increase in suicide rate. Veterans are very familiar with the use of firearms. So when you have a population that knows how to use a firearm, uh, firearms are the most lethal means of suicide. So you have a population that's familiar with a very lethal means 
that you see a, a much higher rate of suicide among those populations who use a more lethal means, as well as um, in populations that tend to be isolated. So when you think about some of the rural communities, like very rural <laughs> Minnesota, Minnesota had a high suicide rate among its National Guard and really stepped up and did a lot to address it. And now Minnesota's on a lower end of the suicide spectrum. Farming community is a very small town and access to care is you know, 100 miles away and it's hard to get treatment. Facilities don't exist. There's a shortage of medical providers. Those are some other factors that Im impact a suicide in great care where it is available, where people get treatment. We know treatment works. We know that you can overcome feeling suicidal and that you can find your you know, new normal. You can reinvent your life. Well, you know, and a lot of times with, with dementia too, you know, they revert back in time. So they may have dealt with it and now we're pushing yeah. them back into it. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that can hap happen subtly or it could be triggered instantly i mean so many different different routes there um but we have to be conscious of that and apparently the dogs are agreeing with my comment <laughs> yes i heard your snowplow and now i hear my dogs <laughs> yeah some things we can't control so you know they're elderly dogs so uh -huh. they're triggers and their responses you know they can't see they can't hear <laughs> <laughs> so all they have left is their ability to bark. So I think there's a there's an aging message in there too for our pets. Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> do you have some suggestions of, of what our audience can do to help support vets as they age? So I so I think the um the ability to be a, a caregiver for a, especially a disabled aging veteran, is to be very mindful of their need for their independence, as I'm sure with anybody else, but to also recognize the importance of that military experience, to know the what might be a unique factor like exposure to Agent Orange, um, know what a lifelong PTSD could be all about, and then what means of support are there? Um, the veteran service organizations are available. They have all kinds of programs. It's not just being solely reliant on the, the VA and those medical centers, but there's a whole bunch of other community activities. Um, there's the National Resource Directory has a, uh, is a website that you can look up by your area what's available. There are something like 60,000 nonprofits that want to help um, the military. There are some very local community-based programs. Easter Seals has programs. So just knowing that there are some things very specific and very targeted for veterans and, and to look for that, mm -hmm. I think it's important is just to be able to properly search for that kind of information. Okay. And then do you want to talk a little bit about your Whistleblower of America organization too? Sure. So Whistleblowers of America, we started that as a peer support program for people who have identified wrongdoing um, in relation to waste, fraud, and abuse in the government, the private sector. We have veterans who have been denied access to care. 
We've dealt with privacy violations in relation to your medical record um, and, and medical errors and the types of things the VA employees have tried to report to make things better for veterans. So what we try to do is um, provide them with, uh, with peer support. We're non-legal, non-medical. We work from a strategic planning perspective, like what do you need to do for you? What does right look like? What are your options? What systems are in place to help you with your case if you're gonna pursue a case? And then how do you you know, get through that? What makes you resilient? And again, I'm using a lot about what I know from the military community in overcoming the, the traumatic stress. And I consider whistleblower retaliation is something we should look at like we do other types of problems, like we look at religious persecution. Retaliation might not necessarily result in, in a physical death, although in some cases look like suicide and medical errors, there may have been patient deaths. Um, overall, what happens to you and the impact on your life uh, people have called it um, career suicide. So you lose a lot of yourself when you become a whistleblower because you're, you lose your professional reputation, your character is assassinated, I by people who don't even know you if your, if your case becomes public. Now all of a sudden people who have never met you have an opinion about you and they're sharing it on Facebook. So that's very, that could be very stressful for people. And it all started because you thought you were doing the right thing and it has gone um, very awry. And, and I've talked to people who stood up for other people, you know, they've reported discrimination um, based on race, gender, um, sexual harassment, um, bullying, all kinds of um, what I call the toxic tactics mm -hmm. of um, the workplace. So. And we, we talk about it in terms of gaslighting, mobbing, devaluing, marginalizing, shunning, um, blackballing, double binding, and then the, um, the accusing and, and in some cases the emotional and physical violence that gets perpetrated against whistleblowers. Yeah, well, and we're seeing so many of those coming forward now from you know, the, I mean, even just the kids in the Parkland shooting incident being attacked or, you know, women from the Me Too. And um, there's just, there's, there, we're just seeing a lot of people, a lot more people coming forward. But with that seeing just the ridiculous attacks on some of these people too, and just the, the, the anger and the vindictiveness and the you know, to do anything to get them to shut up and go away and realizing this, the strength of these people who are just trying to make our world a better place. Really admirable, you know, to put yourself in that position because it's not an easy road to hoe. Whistleblowers have a First Amendment right to speak out. Now, you don't have to like everything they say. You don't have to agree with everything they say, but they have a certain amount of a right like everybody else to speak out. And most whistleblowers are speaking out in the face of some sort of wrongdoing. Mm -hmm. Speaking out because they're trying to be contrary or difficult. They're trying to right a wrong. I mean, that's always an element of being a whistleblower. Mm -hmm. um, that they're not trying to be troublemakers. And, I, and 
we do need to change the conversation. You do a Microsoft search on whistleblower, you know, it'll give you all these negative words, mole, snitch, tattletale. It doesn't give you first relator, protector, truth teller. And that's, we need to shift our thinking about whistleblowers to a more positive um, image and role. And instead of embedding them in this adversarial human resources process, we should really be including whistleblowers in, in organizational development process improvement quality management, right, all those different types of um, approaches. Um, we don't do the root cause analyses like the joint. So that's why I'm excited about getting to do this, taking on sort of this new population and really trying to change the dynamic about the yeah, well, it's uh, it's interesting. I, I know myself, even just when I switched and, and got into the dementia space, I, I wasn't viewed as a whistleblower, but I was viewed as very different in terms of my mm -hmm. approach. Mm -hmm. And um, some people really embraced it, and some people really tried to squelch it mm -hmm. and um, disapprove of it. But, you know, for me, the only way I could come into this space is um, how I viewed it was I couldn't work in a broken system. You know, yeah. I, I just, I needed to try to, and I knew it wasn't going to be perfect, um, but I, I needed to at least try to provide something different. And, you know, for me, it's been almost 10 years in this space, and I still feel some of that at times. So it's gotten, I, I think I'm much more accepted now and, you know, have gotten some recognitions that um, have really helped, um, but it's it's a it's a tough battle, and emotionally, it can just drain you at times where you just like, I give up. You know, it's <laughs> too much. I don't want to do this. And again, I wasn't a, a full whistleblower per se, but just uh, you know, when we take a different approach. Um, there are going to be those skeptics and, and those that that want to squelch you. And you have to just stay really strong in terms of why, you know, why are you approaching this to begin with? And if you always go back to that why, it's for the greater good. And you can't, I don't think you can go wrong if that is truly your focus, if it really is to improve things. It might take longer than what we like. And there might be some people who will never, ever accept what it is you have to say. But those people existed before you got into this space, too. <laughs> you know, And so it's, it's a matter of learning how to move forward and align with those who get you. Because I, I know, you know, for me, sometimes um, I just have to give up on trying to convince somebody else that there's another way. Because they're draining too much of my energy. And I... If I can get to other people and get them on board, then we have more voices going and, you know, it makes life a little bit easier. But trying to figure that balance out, I, especially in the beginning, is really hard because you just want everyone to get it. You want everyone, you know, to get on board. And, and granted, that's the goal. But, you know, know that chances are you're not going to get that 100%. Certainly if we're advocates and we're trying to make a condition better, mm -hmm. I think that we all come to the table for the right reason. And it's being able to 
be seen as coming to the table for the right reason. I mean, I had somebody say to me when I first said, oh, I'm working with whistleblowers on this project right now. And they, and she said, oh, that makes me bristle. And I said, no, no, don't bristle. Whistleblowers are a good thing. They're, they're there to help you. And, mm-hmm. and I had to really talk her through the organizational development, employee engagement, managing change, continuous process improvement, and when you start to reframe it, and you start to think about it in, in managing change, and improving systems, and improving structures, and adding a voice, and, and pulling together maybe disparate thoughts. And one of my one of my favorite things to do is communities and organizations is to map that. Mm-hmm. We, we all know our inner circle, right? We all know, you know, the, you know, when you're talking about, let's say dementia, you're up, you can be looking at the, the individual who was diagnosed and the family and then the, the extended family and the, you know, the, the church or the employer. And you can start to figure out those are the pieces that are around that person. But what about some of the non-traditional? Who else can you bring to the table? Who else might have skin in the game? What about the local recreation center or the health club or the library or an art project devoted to um, living with dementia or the asking the bank to host an art project devoted to dementia or um, you know the the financial management issues involved in the social um, world? And it, it just makes it easier too, and you get resources that you didn't a didn't even know you needed or that you had access to and a lot of times they're free people will just bring them to the table because they can they have access to them and they believe but i think that's you know i think you know what you're talking about is that that passion and that purpose to improve it's not it so many times it gets framed as good or bad you know and it's it's not we have to stop looking at things as a win or lose and we have to, we have to start looking at it as progress to improve and, and failure is just a tool. And when we, um, you know, we should be patting people on the backs for recognizing failure and coming up with other ways, you know, that, that should be a huge, thank God we have these people. You know, because it really is about the greater good. It is about moving forward. It's not, um, you know, when I used to uh, be a supervisor in healthcare, I would always say, the door is open. You can always come in and, and talk to me. But, you know, it's not just about talking and letting people vent. It's getting them vested in change. And when they can bring ideas to the table and not that everything's going to be implemented but when they feel their voice is heard, you're going to make change in a better fashion and on a faster platform in a way than you ever imagined because you've got more buy-in. I mean, it's just, it's common sense to me. And I just kind of go, how did this get so twisted? You know, because to me, the way my, the way my brain works, it's like, how did we get the, you know, these stigmas attached to certain things? Because they really have shut us down. And I think we're in an era now of trying to lift those myths and, and dispense of those. And people are just like, let's move forward. Let's, let's make sense. Let's, 
always try to improve. Let's stop thinking that we've got it perfect because everything else around us is going to change. So we still have to be fluid. And I, I think we're coming to an era of more, um, more people wanting to be part of that, of a fluid society, one that's always improving, one that it is okay to have an opinion. And um, it's okay to agree to disagree, you know, at times, as long as it's in a respectful fashion. And, um, you know, be adults. I was talking to a friend who's an audiologist. Now, and I don't always think about suicide and audiology, but, you know, she had attended this presentation on tinnitus and, you know, the, the hearing aids. Yep. People that have had head trauma also have hearing loss and or vision loss. And how do you bring, you know, those communities to the table? Um, the audiologists have a role to play in mitigating suicide. Yeah. And I thought about the audiologists and suicide prevention if it hadn't been for her kind of sharing with me that she had just gone to this conference and there was this whole presentation. Those are the types of things that you have to be open and willing to think outside your box mm -hmm. so that you can hear what other people might bring to the table. And, and you might not think, oh, well, that's not really relevant. But then if you give it, you give it time and attention, you, you figure out maybe later on down the line, well, that was relevant. Or, yeah. you know, this person who I didn't think um, could be a support for me actually might be a support, maybe not in this area, but they have this whole body of knowledge that, um, you know, that they're involved with. And, and maybe I could get involved with that, too. And that would be, even if it's a release, right? You know, mm -hmm. I'm so focused on this. It might be good to get away from this and go look at that and, mm -hmm. and get out of my, my norm and experience something different could be enlightening and, um, and, and help me deal with the stress of my everyday life, too, to do something, you know, different. I'm not suggesting you have to go skydiving or bungee cord jumping, mm -hmm. but you get out of your comfort level and you experience things with other people that you might not think of as part of your traditional social support network. And it does help to take that um, anxiety and, and maybe de-escalate a stressful situation or just give you that that break, that respite that you need from your own issues to mm -hmm. kind of hear what somebody else is dealing with and, and how, what are the solutions that they're using? Like we talked about earlier, um, you know, why, why, why should a former army officer spend time with um, former NFL players? Like what do we have in common? Mm -hmm. And that shared, that shared learning was a great opportunity to hear about, um, what they're doing for their community and how are they helping retired athletes deal with the physical and stressful. And then all of a sudden you find all these commonalities between football players and uh, military veterans who have had, you know, the loss of the team, the loss of the uniform, the, the helmet, the body armor, losing that whole identity, losing that um, uniform, that, that is um, stressful and overcoming. Um, and what are the systems at play? And again, how do you take these, these non-traditional peers and match them up 
so that they can support each other. And there were programs that they were talking about, like at the Eisenhower Center, where they do match up and they do pair peers from these non-traditional environments. And you can train somebody to be a mentor. We, are, we often talk about, you know, can a male be a good mentor for a female? Or can a female be a good mentor for a male coming up in a corporation? Um, are their challenges that much different that they couldn't mentor each other? And of course, that's not true. I mean, you can learn quite a bit. Some of my best mentors have been men. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to be a mentor to, to other females coming up behind me. Um, and it doesn't, different races, different cultural backgrounds, you can, you can um, bridge those gaps and help each other learn and grow without having to agree on every, you know, point by point by point. Yeah. Well, and if, if you're only going to mentor women and men are only going to mentor men, that just makes the divide stronger. And it's not looking at our commonalities, it's looking at our differences, and our differences divide us, and our commonalities build bonds and friendships and support. And, you know, there's also this ability to learn, you know, from others, you know, that none of us has all the answers, that if we're honest, we all see and hear things differently, though we all think everybody sees and hears things exactly the way we do, they don't. Because their history is different, their attitude is different, their perceptions are different. And, you know, and that, I think, is part of being a strong leader, is to understand those differences, to expect those differences, to appreciate those differences, and use them to add to your arsenal of growth instead of trying to blow them up, you know, go, this is a gift, you know, I can use this in, in other areas to to look at things differently, to maybe be um, apathetic for someone else or show some compassion um, that I didn't, I didn't realize that I was coming off like this. You know, I thought I was a good person. I thought I was being respectful. And all of a sudden you're seeing, oh, maybe not so much, you know, <laughs> and, and having that ability to change. So I, I think um, I, I love the work that you're doing. It is, it, it is so broad but so powerful and yet so specific you know to to raise people and to not make them feel isolated and to truly understand who they are at their core and to help them live the best lives and with with whistleblowers is you know they're trying to help people live the best life as well and sometimes we have to expose some things that aren't working in order to correct them there's no other way you know, it's not going to change if it's not exposed. And so that can be a, a treacherous um, spot to be. Or if we get companies to really be progressive and, and say, thank you, you're right. This, well, this, thank you would be a long from where we are now. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, really, in terms of, of being so offended, they should be glad they have an opportunity to stop it and to change, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, but it's not looked as an opportunity to change. That it's not, be. you know, it's not referenced in that point, but, you know, hopefully in the years to come that will change because the time wasted fighting this stuff 
Mm -hmm. trying to deny what is happening um, doesn't do anybody any good. And it makes those divides longer. And any company who has a service started a service because they felt there was a need. And a whistleblower is saying either that got off whack or the needs have changed. I mean, it's really, to me, as simple as that. You know, either we, we missed the mark or, or we need to change to continue to serve. Um, but how do we do that? And Spot on. Yeah. So, well, <clears throat> Jackie, thank you so much for being with us today. Now, people can go to your website if they'd like to contact you on, on any of these topics. Um, and your website is whistleblowersofamerica.org. Again, that's whistleblowersofamerica.org. And um, any last um, comments that you want to make to our audience? No, I, I just want to thank you. I appreciate this opportunity. I've enjoyed having this discussion and opening up a whole other level of interest in, in trauma and brain injury for uh, another community. So um, you know, anytime, I'm happy to come back. Okay, well, wonderful. I, I'm going to give a couple of shout outs just to a, a few organizations before we wrap up. I always like to um, give a shout out to Care to Plan, which is a new dementia resource directory that's in beta testing. You can go to alzheimerspeaks.com and go to our resource uh, page. You can learn more about how to participate in that. Um, but it's, it's really powerful and very cool and something I wanted 30 years ago, almost 35 years ago, when my mom first got um, diagnosed and was dealing with symptoms. And I think it's going to help out many people around the country. Um, the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation, if you're looking kind of for holistic approach, they've got a really cool um, meditation program that has research behind it. Um, and that might be something um, of value to your vets as well. And where you do some chanting and then you, you just do some finger movements, but there's some um, great um, statistics behind, um, you know, kind of a refocus and, and finding that, that calmness. And then Maria Shriver has her women's Alzheimer's movement. She's going to be doing Move for the Minds um, again this year. And I believe, I, I still don't have all the details um, because my computer crashed, so I'm running a little behind on, on getting caught up on things. But I think she is going to personally be at four different um, locations this year. And she's still partnering with uh, Equinox um, Fitness Centers um, through the U.S. and I believe into, um, into Europe as well. And then if you're looking for a memory cafe, you can go to um, memorycafedirectory.com which is sponsored by Calendar Cards. Uh, both Calendar and Cards is spent with the K, uh, spelled with the K, which is a, a memory system. And the last one I want to yell out, and this might be really good for your vets too, is the Purple Table Reservations. Um, this is a gal whose mom had dementia, and so they started kind of having a, a gatherings like a memory cafe in their restaurant out east. And she has now developed an app and a training for restaurants in terms of how to deal with people with dementia, but it will be larger than just dementia. It'll be for autism, post-traumatic stress, all kinds of things where it'll be very discreet, but people can 
um, call in and then um, get their reservation. So maybe they'll be seated in a quieter area with better lighting. Um, the choices that the wait staff may give them are going to be fewer, so it's not as complicated. Um, all of those types of things that can just make a, um, a dining experience a little bit easier. So I'm really excited about what they've pulled together. And the training is going to be very um, economical for the restaurant staff to have. And they've got a lot of people requesting this. Now it's getting the, the restaurants on board to, to get them trained. So if anyone listening um, has a connection to a restaurant or maybe owns a chain, um, please go to purpletables.com to get more information on that. So with that, we will go ahead and call it a wrap. And thank you so much again, Jackie. Um, and you can go to Jackie's site one more time is whistleblowersofamerica.com. Thank you again. Bye now. Please can you remind me It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what could be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.